believe that's on page 12 or 13 of the Pew Bible. It's right in the beginning. As is not my custom, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, My conversion, like yours, changed me radically, changed my life, changed my direction, the way I think, live, and behave. It was the biggest watershed moment in my life, and I'm sure yours too. But since then, I would say I've had three minor watershed moments in my Christianity. Three times when I can look back and go, that changed again how I thought, behaved, and lived. First one was about, or the third one, I'll go backwards here, the third one was about six or seven years ago when I began to understand and come to an understanding of the critical nature of the church. I came to this understanding through a mentor who doesn't really know my name, Mark Dever, Reading his resources and, the, and what he has done in my life has been a minor watershed. The second watershed moment occurred nearly 10 years ago, and that was uh, through a mentor of mine, uh, Carl Bergman, who many of you know. And he came and, and in, into my life, and he showed me through the scriptures how critical it is for my identity where I, where I put my meaning, purpose, and value is in Christ and not in other things. And, and it began to teach me, it still, still, begins, still teaches me, how to fear God properly and not to fear man. But the third one, nearly 20 years ago, began when I began to encounter and understand what I call and what has been called the doctrines of grace when I encountered those for the first time. During that time, I had a dear friend named Stephen Johnson, who was the music director at our church at at this time, and we would spend time together talking about these things like unconditional election, how, how God chooses you, you don't choose God, and about the limited atonement. How, how Christ came to save those the Father gave him. Irresistible grace. How those God has chosen will be saved. The perseverance of the saints, or preservation maybe better, said that God, as we just talked about, has a grip on you. You don't have a grip on God. And the fifth one we spent a lot of time talking about was the doctrine of total depravity. The fact that we are more sinful than we can possibly imagine. That the rabbit hole of our depravity goes far deeper than we like to think, and certainly that the world tells us. And Stephen and I would get together and we would remind ourselves of this. We would hold each other accountable. We would spend time and hours confessing our sin to each other. And holding each other accountable. And it became part of our lingo at that time that we would end our conversations by looking at the other person into their eyes and saying, you're a mess. (laughs) And it was a humorous way of reminding us of our total depravity. Let your left to my own devices... 
I, I would be in mess after mess after mess in my life. I, that's my natural proclivity is to create messes. And that's what we see happening in our text today. Abraham and Sarai, left to their own devices, create an enormous mess. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 16. God's word says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into her and conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well will be called Bir Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Arthur Pink wrote, Abram's journey was a journey full of tests. I think we've seen that as we've just gotten to chapter 16. The test of comfort, will he leave Ur? The test of circumstances, what about this famine? The test of relationship, this, this friction I'm having with, my, with Lot. The test of courage, rescuing Lot from the kings. The test of mammon, will he accept the gift from the king of Sodom? And here we have the test 
of family, if you will. Will he listen to his wife or trust God's word? Some of these he comes through faithful, as we have seen, and some he stumbles greatly. I mean, he falls flat on his face, and here there is nothing between he and the ground. He falls flat on his face, and he makes a huge mess of the situation. Have you ever made a mess of your life? Have you ever made a decision that you know is wrong? And it takes you down a path, and it just makes a mess of your life. I mean, one of the wonderful things about Scripture, and I hope you, you agree with me on this, and you can, you can come along with the ride here, is that when you read Scripture, there's a lot of people that make messes of their lives in Scripture, isn't there? I mean, you just have to look at Jephthah's rash vow. Or you have to look at Jonah fleeing from God. Really fleeing from God. Uzziah rushing into the temple when he knew that he couldn't, shouldn't go there. Or Moses striking the rock, forbidden from going into the promised land. David, my goodness. It seems like he goes from mess to mess to mess to mess, doesn't it? With Bathsheba and then with uh, his sons and then with counting his army and then with on and on. And so did Abram right here. And his mess begins with his passivity. His mess is created because of his passivity. Abram had recently been encouraged. We just read this. And I don't think scripture wants us to see a great deal of time between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. There's nothing in the text that tells us that. He had just been encouraged by this amazing covenant, this smoking fire pot. He would be given land and descendants as numerous as the stars. He was even given a personal preview of of the cross right there, wasn't he? And yet Sarai gets tired of waiting and comes to him. She hadn't had a son yet. Having a baby with Hagar since she didn't have one. And he goes into her. It's as if he had never seen the vision of the Lord. It's as if he'd never heard God's voice. It's as if he'd never seen God pointing him up to the stars. And he goes in and he collapses into passivity. You can hear it in verses 2 and 3. Did you hear his passivity? As Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. May it be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived I hope you're hearing an echo here of something you've read before. Because that's what the Holy Spirit through Moses wants us to hear in that passage that I just read to you. A a very loud echo of Genesis 3. Of the fall. Of how how Adam reacted to Eve. 
He wants to parallel that so we see that this is going to be another cataclysmic fall with huge consequences. Adam listened to his wife, it says in Genesis 3. She gave him fruit. He ate. Abram listened to his wife. She gave him Hagar, and he went into her. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to see that this is another Humpty Dumpty moment. This is another fall that cannot be put back together. Abram's passivity, like Adam's, is going to lead to unending consequences. Abram acted like his father Adam. He should have led spiritually here. That's what we should have seen in Abram, especially after chapter 15. He should have stood firm, right? He should have reiterated the promises to his wife. Said, honey, honey, remember what we, I heard and what I told you. We are going to have a son. He would, he would have painted the picture of the smoking fire pot again to her. He should have pointed to the stars. He should have said, honey, honey, come out here. Look at the stars. He should have encouraged patience with God's promises. As Edward Bauer reminds us, patience is not passive. On the contrary, it is active. And he describes it as concentrated strength. Patience is concentrated strength. Isn't that a wonderful image? Abram should have had concentrated strength and said no. Instead, he was passive, and his passivity creates a mess. Herein are the two great struggles for us men. And I speak to you men. These are the two great struggles that we have, and they're two sides of the same sin coin tyranny and passivity. Tyranny and passivity. Some men struggle with being tyrants, being, bringing tyranny into their family, dominance, control, authoritarianism, kind of a my way or the highway. The buck stops with me, and it stops very quickly. Kind of creates a family atmosphere of having a sword of Damocles always hanging over your family and your wife. One wrong move and there will be terrible consequences. But the other side of that sin coin is just as damaging. And that is passivity. It is a refusal to lead. A refusal to stand firm in what God says. It's a recessive timidity that goes along to get along. You know what? I'm just going to go along because I don't want any issues in my house. I don't want any conflict. And we see that here in Abram's reaction to Sarai. He agrees to the proposition, even though he'd heard from God. He'd had these promises reiterated to him at least four times. And we see this passivity even again in verses 5 and 6 when Sarai finally comes to him and says, Hey, listen, it's your fault. Again, here's the blame game. What are you going to do about it? And you can even see kind of Abram throwing up his hands. Well, you know, she's your servant. You deal with it. She's asking him to lead. Maybe not in the right motivation, 
And he says, no dirt on me. Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee wrote, the particular sin of omission which gives ground to the evil spirits is the believer's passivity. It gives ground, it gives leeway, it gives the devil that foothold that we we read about in the New Testament. We're not created to be passive. We are created to be patient, which looks a little bit like passivity. It can look that way, but we're called to be patient, but not passive. We're called to be merciful, that sometimes can be misconstrued as passivity, but it's not. We're called to be discerning and wise, which sometimes can look like passivity, but it's not. We're called to be patient people that are passionate about Christ. Patient people that are passionate about Christ. Just as people who don't care one way or another can't be artists, the same might be said of Christians too. Artists who have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude don't create much art. Passive painters don't paint much or of much importance. The prerequisite for making art is passion. Christians who have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude never make much impact for the kingdom. Passivity in your faith is a sure path to nominalism. Over and over again, we're called to have zeal for the Lord, right? That's the word the, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament especially uses, zeal for the Lord, zeal, passion. And that passion creates a person who cares deeply about the kingdom of God here in Maine who desires to obey, who struggles with sin, who hates the sin in them, and is passionate about the things of God and not the things of the world, as we've been learning in Sunday school. In John 2, Jesus drives out the money changers, that famous scene where he overturns the tables and he picks up and whips the, the, the people out of the temple. And it's right afterwards that John's gospel reminds us of what that reminded the disciples. It says the disciples remembered that the zeal for his father's house will consume him. That moment was a big indicator for them that this is the Messiah. His zeal for the Lord, his passion his emotions were touched and he acted. His passion fueled his defense of God's honor and name. His passion fueled his compassion to heal. His passion for you and me led him to Calvary. To exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness so that we might be called the righteousness of God. That was all fueled by his passion for us. His zeal. Led him to give up his life. 
A passive Savior would never do that. Only a passionate one. Only a passionate one. So Abram's passivity led to this mess, but also Sarah's impatience. And that's the other side of this that we see is Sarah's impatience with God's plan. She's been waiting years for the promise of a son to come true, and she finally becomes impatient. And she comes up with a shortcut. She makes the mistake that we make all the time. She looks to culture for the solution to her problem and not to God. Did you catch that? In the ancient Near East, it was perfectly acceptable, logical, and legal if you did not have a son to carry on your name, to carry on the family lineage, it was perfectly legal and acceptable to get a surrogate. And so Sarai looked around, saw culture doing this, and so this was a very natural thing for culture to do around. We even have a parallel today called surrogate mothers, where a woman is impregnated and carries the child for this couple that cannot have a child. Now, I'm not making the parallels that is sinful, but I'm just making the parallels so that we can understand we have this in our culture too. But what Sarai did was not just cultural, but sinful. She introduced polygamy into the line of promise. Did you, I mean, did you catch it over and over again? says that she gave Hagar, verse 3, to Abram as his wife. Now, polygamy might have been culturally accepted, but three times in our text, three times our, the, the, the scripture says, stop, please stop, don't do this, Abram. Look at verse 1. It repeats this three times so that, so that we understand that this is not God's plan. In verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife. Drop down to verse 3, twice in verse 3. So Abram, after he lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. The text is screaming out, this is not God's design. God's design is from Genesis 2, one man, one wife, for life. And here, three times it's saying, stop. You're headed for a train wreck. Anything that deviates from that, one man, one wife, for life, leads to a mess. We have to be very careful that we don't look to culture for our cues. We have to be really sensitive to this, brothers and sisters. That we don't look to culture all the time for the solutions of our life difficulties. Now, he hasn't given us chapter and verse on everything. I totally understand that. But he has given us his word and he has given us wisdom. 
And he has given us community. We were just challenged in Sunday school to open our finances and have financial discussions with people in the church and getting counsel as to how you're spending your money. I think that's really solid, solid biblical counsel. We're so tempted to look to culture and it brings incredible messes into our life. It brings incredible messes into the church. I, you just have, don't have to look further than the seeker-sensitive worship to see that, where you water down the gospel to make it palpable for people that don't believe. Business structures imported into the, into the church. Let's have boards and committees and not elders and deacons. Measurements of success, even. The ABCs, we import those right into the church. Attendance, building, and cash. That's a healthy church. Big attendance, big building, lots of money. No, brothers and sisters, not at all. It's spiritual depth, it's spiritual growth, it's intimacy of the body. It's self-sacrifice for one another. That's when we see success. We don't just have to look at our churches, but we can see that when we import cultural norms and take our cues from culture, our lives become messy. When we look to culture for our cues on how to satisfy our deepest longing, longing those, that hole that we talk about in our heart or in our souls or in our, in our chest that can't be filled, but we try and fill it with, with money for security, for prestige, reputation, or power. All these things that that culture says, this will do it for you. Put all your hope in these things. And we learn that as as we put weight into those things, it can't bear the weight of that kind. They break. Maybe not right now, but they will eventually. It just can't bear the weight of your soul. And we make messes of our lives when we look to culture for the security that only God's promises actually give us. And there is the root of the problem here. God has promised a son in his time and Sarai looks to polygamy in her time. Impatience with God's plan. And we see this shortcut in our own culture, don't we? We see people who want babies, but don't want husbands or fathers. That's a shortcut. We see people who want intimacy and the pleasure of sex, but they don't want the commitment or the covenant of marriage. We want the benefits of, of a church, but I don't want the commitment of membership. That's too much. These are all shortcuts, and they lead to messes in your life. And look at the messes it makes right here when they take a shortcut. The mess we're left with at verse 6 is a broken marriage, a rejected and hurting single mother who's all alone, 
and an innocent child caught in the middle in her belly. What a mess. If the text had stopped there, we would all leave here crushed. But praise God that we serve a God of the messes. God reaches out into the messes that we create. That's his specialty, guys. That's what he does. That's the beauty of the God we serve. He is the God of the messes. He comes into the train wrecks of this situation and he somehow redeems it. He comes into the train wrecks of your and my lives and somehow redeems it. And by the way, your and my lives are train wrecks. They really are. But God redeems those. My mother used to say, God's specialty is planting a flower on on a dung heap. That's what he does. God is a God of the messes. And that is what God does. He redeems it. But first, he sees the mess. God sees the mess. And I want us to see that here. In verse 7, we have Hagar running away. That's where we're left. But it says there that the angel of the Lord came to her, right? The angel of the Lord found her and came to her in verse 7. We find her, he found her on the border of Egypt, way down at the southern border of Egypt with the promised land. See, Hagar was going home. She was an Egyptian. She said, I'm going home. And the Lord found her there. Angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in our text. You'll see this again and again and again uh, in Genesis and in the Old Testament. Many believe, and I happen to be one of them, that this is a a Christophany, a a pre-incarnate Christ. And you can see that, and there's some discovery notes uh, that you can look at and do some study on that. But here we see that he accepts being called God, right? Where other angels say, no, 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 don't don't bow to me. Don't. The angel of the Lord says, yep, I'm God. So here we have God, Christ, coming to her. And God wants us to understand that he sees Hagar's messy situation and, and found her and came to her. And she is so comforted by this that in verse 13, she names him the God who sees, right? The God who sees. So he sees her, he comes to her, she names him the God who sees, and even the well where she is is named, right? The God who sees. Well of the living one who sees me. God wants Hagar and us to know that he sees us in our troubles. He watches over us. He looks after us, as it says in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, God's watching eye is a great source of comfort. It's a great source of comfort. Think of Psalm 139's great question, where can I go from you? This isn't a man's cry of, I want to get away from you. 
He is, he's going on a journey. Where can I go from you? Where can I? The answer is no place. And the, and, and the joy in that, the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In other words, God's presence is good. Psalm 121, this, a question is asked, where does my help come from? Many of you maybe have memorized this. I can't tell you how many times I've sat next to somebody in the hospital and read this psalm. Why? Because it's so comforting to know that God watches over your coming and going both now and forevermore. God's watchful eye is a comforting thing. An engineer once gave a testimony, his testimony after doing an internship at NASA. He made a startling decision to change his course of study and start studying medicine. And a couple decades later, he gave this testimony as to why he changed his decision. He said, my decision to enter medicine in part was to follow Jesus, to heal the sick and to ease suffering. As an anesthesiologist, I have the crucial role of putting patients to sleep and reviving them later. And here's the interesting thing he said. Although the patients may not be aware of my presence during surgery, I constantly monitor and watch over them. Not just the operative part, but the entire patient. And he says that constantly reminds me how our Lord watches over each and every one of us, even though we're not aware of his presence. Hagar felt comforted by God seeing her. Brothers and sisters, feel so comforted that God watches you. It's not a terrifying thing. It's a wholly comforting thing. But he not only watches, but he also listens. That's what the text tells us too. So here Hagar is all alone feeling abandoned like an unwed mother and Yahweh comes to Hagar and asks her a question. Where are you going? Have you ever stepped back and stopped reading your scripture for a second and said, why is God asking these questions if I really believe he's sovereign? I mean, that's kind of silly. You know, when you look back at at chapter 3 in Genesis, when after they fall, after they sin, he comes and says, where are you? God didn't know where they were. That puts a real sticking point in my confidence. Why is he asking these questions? Why is he prompting them? God knows all, so why ask? I think it's because he wants to show he cares for his children. He cares for his children. Listening shows that you care. Listening shows that you care. That's why God told us throughout Scripture, pray to me, talk to me, engage with me, pray to me. I care. Prayer is given to us for a multitude of reasons. I don't have time to unpack what prayer is. There's probably a couple handfuls of reasons why he tells us to pray. Certainly to build up our relationship, to act on our trust. To, to show our dependence on God, but also to remind us that he cares for us. Now, why don't we pray? 
Well, again, there's probably a couple handfuls of reasons why we don't pray. Some of us don't pray because we think we can handle this solution. I got it. Still others don't pray because there's some sin in your life. John Bunyan said, prayer will make a man cease from sin, as sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Others pray because, don't pray because they don't want God to change their lives. Missionary Hudson Taylor said, whenever we truly get alone with God, he'll deal with our lives. You know, God, I'm going to use this word, and it's not a word that we, that we think of as positive anymore, but God wants to radicalize you. He wants to radicalize you for his purposes. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't think anybody's listening. You know, sometimes I pray out loud in my study during the week, and, and I don't know if you've done this, but if you pray out loud, sometimes you get the strange sensation that this, this is just a voice in a room bouncing off the ceiling. Is anybody really listening? Am I alone in this? I guess I'm alone in this. We all have that thought, at least I thought, from time to time. Hagar too. Hagar thought that too. And Yahweh knew this. And so you know what he does that's beautiful in verse 11? Look at verse 11. He says, you shall call his name Ishmael. This is beautiful. Do you know what Ishmael means? Some of you can just look down at the bottom at the note. It means God hears. Think about that for a second. Name your son Ishmael. So every time you sing Ishmael to sleep, you can be reminded that God hears you. Every time you call Ishmael for dinner, you'll be reminded that God hears you. Isn't that beautiful? Every time you pray for Ishmael, by the way, and it says he's going to be quite a difficult person, so I'm sure that she prayed for him by name. Ishmael, save my son Ishmael. God, you're hearing me. It's a great reminder that she needed, and it's a great reminder that we need, isn't it? God hears us. We need those reminders too when we pray for our children or our spouses or our jobs or our marriages or our church or the salvation of our loved ones or that person you're praying for to bring to Alpha. God hears you. First Peter 3.12 reminds us, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. He listens. James 5.16 teaches us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God sees, God hears, and the third thing he does is he acts. God acts. We see God acting here, but not like we expect. Have you ever had that experience in your own life where you pray for something and he answers it and you go, my goodness, that wasn't exactly what I was praying for. Because we pray for what we think is best, and God knows what's best. And sometimes 
what he gives us is kind of inexplicable and unexpected. And that's what we see here in verse 9. In verse 9, he comes to her, and the angel of the Lord says to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Boy, thank you. You're sending me right back into the relationship that I wanted to get out of. You know, Yahweh says, go back. Dale Ralph, Ralph, Dale Ralph Davies, who's an excellent pastor, wrote this. If this had been written by a human impulse, it would have God saying, I absolutely understand how you can feel that way. He would not have made her return. If men had wrote this, it would give her consolation without hardship. Isn't that what we always pray for? Give me a way out, and I don't want any hardship in it, by the way. God tells Hagar, go back, stay, remain in the hard relationship. In other words, you will have home and security, but you'll also have Sarai. Now, this passage is not telling us to allow ourselves to become whipping posts. But as Paul said, as he went back to Lystra and Iconium, where they tried to kill him, as Paul says, you will enter the kingdom of God through much hardship. That's the life. That's the life that God actually predestines for us. God many times does not alleviate our troubles, but asks us to go through them. In other words, God's redemption comes at a cost. Maybe there are some hard relationships that God is telling you to stay in right now. Maybe there's a hard work situation that's really weighing on you. Or a hard friendship. Or some people in your family that are hard. Or maybe some people right here that you have difficulty with. Where our wisdom would say flee. Maybe not physically from here, but flee relationally from here. God might be saying, go back and remain. I think that's part of the struggle that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you think? What was his, what was his humanity telling him at that point? Run away. There has to be another way. Not this way. Not the cross. That's the hard thing. But God's will for him was to stay and walk up that hill. Go to the cross. Do the hardest thing. But there is a second redeeming action by God here. He gave her a son. That's verse 11. I'm gonna, you're pregnant with a son. Now, I don't have time to go into all the detail, but a son in the ancient Near East and even in the Middle East now is the greatest blessing you can have when you have a son. It's one of the greatest blessings because it secures the family line. It secures the land. The land will remain. That the father would have help in the fields. That the family would stay together. The son, the firstborn son, guaranteed that the family would stay together. And God redeems the situation by giving Hagar an amazing blessing, but again, not without consequences. 
Did you read about the consequences? Ishmael is going to be this wild donkey of a man. Contentious, combative, aggressive. And if you want to go ahead and read ahead to verse uh, chapter 21 and, and chapter 25, you see that out of Ishmael comes these 12 tribes that are the Arab nation. You want to know what a huge consequence of chapter 16 in Genesis is? Is millennia of, of blood being spilt over that land between the Jews and the Arabs. Again, God is redeeming the situation, but not like we think. We all love resolution without consequences. That's why we watch so many of these movies that end happily ever after. We go, ah, the consequence is none. Oh, isn't that nice? And we get used to that. But that's not the way of the Christian life. Resolution without consequences. Redemption without cost. I want to put forward to you today that this passage is teaching that that is not possible. Redemption without cost. Hagar will have a home, but it'll be a difficult one. The son, she will have a son, but it'll, he will be difficult, and it'll be a difficult lineage. And therein lies the cross. We will have salvation, but not without an incredible cost. We will have a home because Jesus came and lived without one. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We will have a good relationship and a restored relationship with God because Jesus gave his up at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will have forgiveness for our sins because he became sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God. We will have life. Why? At an incredible cost. Because the Son of God died. We praise God. He redeems, redeems the messes that we make and the messes that we are. But let us never forget what a cost it was. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Use it, move us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen.